bit is the biggest part to it because you're trying to get as many calories as you can, but as light weight as you can, basically. So that's really challenging in terms of pre-sorting this type of food and seeing if it actually agrees with you before you even get there. It's working out, you know, what you can have that you're not going to get bored of um, and it works with your stomach. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? I'm a bit sore, Steph. Um, I had a bit of an impromptu trail run uh, a few days ago and I uh, pulled up a bit sore from that. Yeah, well, it was it was not planned at all. I uh, took the kids for a hike um, if you know Kings Falls, it's out sort of out the back of Arthur's Seat down the Mornington Peninsula. Oh, it, no, um, I haven't been there. Yeah, there's a waterfall there with a little, you know, couple of K loop. And then there's a track that joins that to the top of Arthur's Seat and it goes past, like crosses over the two base track. Yep. Um, where the, the race is. Um, so anyway, we, we walked along there and um, ended up the boys wanted to walk all the way to the top of Arthur's Seat, which was fine, except that was about three and a half K. And then it started getting late, started getting cold, and our youngest looked like he wasn't going to make it back. So when you get to the top of Arthur's Seat, they have um, the gondolas that go up and down Arthur's Seat. So in the end, my wife took the two kids on the gondolas to fill in time, and I had to run back to the car to get it, which is about 3.5k back along the trail. So, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, pulled up a little bit sore around the sort of... All little sort of stabilizing muscles around my ankles and stuff just from not having you know run technical trails for a very long time and from not being equipped i was just wearing casual runners and you know had my full backpack with all the kids water bottles and lunch and stuff in it so yeah it was it was interesting but yeah a bit of fun a bit of excitement for the weekend you know you're gonna pick it up do you reckon <laughs> i don't know i uh i walk i ran the downhills and walked the uphills uh my fitness yep. is the worst it's been in a very very long time thanks to lockdowns and kids and work and stuff so yeah i don't yep. know i think it'll take a bit to get me back into it yeah pole pole as the kenyans say slowly slowly and you'll get there mm, yep <laughs> and how about you are you uh keeping warm it's bloody freezing the last couple of days yeah it's been a bit nippy hasn't it yeah like mm. yeah um but still still some you know, pretty decent days. Like um, it's not been not been horrible. Uh, I mean, when we've gotten some good downpours, that's been fun running, um, going through the mud and um, getting quite wet and stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm just ticking along. Uh, we've we um, submitted a a paper for one of our um, one of our PhD studies. So. Uh, we've found out that we've got some just some minor revisions for that. So fingers crossed that all gets through the finish line, and um, I will be glad when that one um, <laughs> is is uh, is submitted and hopefully approved. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, good one. Yeah, yeah. Have you been watching the tour? I uh, I haven't actually, but I'm I'm thinking I might watch it tonight. I know you've been giving me updates and. Uh, yeah, yep. it's been, yep. there's been a f fair few accidents I've heard. Is that right? Oh, it's been carnage. I mean, it's, it's 
to be fair, it's carnage most years at the tour in the first week, but this year possibly more than it has been for a while. But um, yeah, no, Mon Von 2 tonight, which is obviously a, a big stage. So if it's a good night to watch. Um, so if you're listening to this, the stage will be over by then, but you'll know who won. Yeah. We've got no idea. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it'll be really interesting. And it's been really interesting also to look um, in terms of social media. So we've got Dr. Sam Impey, for example, who was mm. on episode 2A of the podcast. And he's uh, been tweeting fairly regularly, actually, about some of the stuff that he and um, and the chef with the bike exchange team, Nicky Strobel, some of the stuff that they've been doing. And um, he's been sort of, obviously, the pictures of the food they're preparing, but then he's commenting sort of on the science behind that and, um, you know, how much the, the guys are eating between sort of four and 18 grams per kilo per day of carbs, depending on the day and the mm-hmm. stage and what's going on. So they're really doing that adjustment up and down, like we heard also from... Um, James Moran from Ineos Grenadiers when he was on the podcast about multi-day events as well. So, um, yeah, so it's been really interesting to see what they're doing uh, and to, to sort of stay in, in touch with what's going on with them, which is great. So, yeah, that's been really good. Uh, and also a big shout-out to Emma Jeffcoat, who was uh, in Episode mm. 2B of the podcast. Uh, so her selection for the Australian Olympic team was announced last end of last week. So big congrats also to her. Yeah, massive congrats. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah. So that's now, I think, four of our 14 athlete guests that we've had so far uh, are going to mm. Tokyo. And then we've obviously had one, uh, Aneko Lanos, who's a, a former Olympian as well. Yeah, yeah. We're spoiled. Mm, absolutely. And then we're going to hopefully steal some of the athletes after the Olympics as well and the um, uh, people working with them, their support staff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, so anyone interested uh, a little bit more about what goes on at the Tour de France, uh, as we said, episode 2A was with Dr. Sam Impey, who works with Team Bike Exchange. Uh, but more recently, episode 13A was around how do I plan for a multi-day event with James Moran, who's the dietitian with Ineos Grenadiers, um, working with them for the tour. So, yeah, lots of stuff to go and check out. Mm, yep. And so here at the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. So it's those questions that you might chat about when you're out training together or having your recovery brekkie. Um, And we usually start off with a part A, which is uh, talking to a, a researcher or a practitioner and then a part B, which is typically talking to a athlete or a coach. Um, and so any questions that you've got, please post them out to us on our social media or on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at The Long Munch. And you can listen to us on all your popular podcast platforms. Mm, absolutely. And uh, thank you to whoever left a new rating for us on Apple Podcasts. They gave us five stars, which is always nice. Mm. Um, obviously, they're, they're anonymous podcast ratings, so we can't see them. But if anyone else feels the need to hit the five stars on Apple Podcasts for the, the, our humble podcast, we'll be very grateful for that as well. Um, and yeah, it's, it's great to see where things are at. We've, um, our last episode last week was... Um, episode number 15a and that was actually our 30th episode so yeah. things are a little bit out of whack as like one of the episodes we only had an a episode um one of them we had an a b c and d episodes so um yeah the numbers don't follow quite perfectly but yeah 30 30 done now and today's number 31 Ooh, that's cool yeah 
and so with this episode we are talking to an athlete and the question that we are asking is how do I tackle and prepare my nutrition for a self-sufficient event and who is the athlete that we have today Alan? Yeah, our guest today is Jody Moss, or should we say Dr. Jody Moss. Um, so Jody uh, was someone I, th- I was really interested to have a chat to because uh, she competed in the 2019 Marathon de Saab, so obviously a self-sufficient multi-day event, um, which is held in the desert in Morocco, so it's an ultra-marathon event. Uh, for those of you not familiar with it or the specific of you know how long it is and all that kind of thing, uh, we'll get into that in the interview, so I won't go through that just now. But um, the reason that we're particularly interested to speak to Jody is that not only is she an athlete herself and has done that event, but uh, she's also a sports scientist by profession. Uh, she has a, a PhD related to um, heat acclimation, and she actually met quite a few competitors in Marathon de Saab um, that were participants in her PhD studies. Um, and on top of that, she also has a master's degree in sport and exercise nutrition from um, Bluffborough University in the UK. So. Um, yeah, lots of uh, theoretical knowledge and then had the chance to sort of put that into practice with herself um, back in 2019. So yeah, really good to hear from her about her perspective on these sorts of events. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So let's get cracked into it. So Jody, uh, welcome to The Long Munch. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, So you're a sports scientist and you've recently completed a PhD on exercise in hot environments. Um, Are you able to give our listeners a bit of a quick overview of of what you did and the the main findings that you uh, found out of your research? Yeah, sure. So um, I finished my PhD, uh, well, I vived last February so yeah it's time has absolutely flown by since then but my PhD was all about investigating the key interventions of how we can mitigate heat stress and the three key inventions that I explored were hydration strategies, cooling and heat acclimation and within my PhD, it was, an, it was a beautiful story that I actually look back and actually think it was lovely. I mean, I wasn't thinking it was so great when I was doing it. There was some <laughs> tough times, but um, yeah, it started off with the hydration. And I, was, uh, I was at Loughborough University under the supervision of Dr. Lewis James. And within that kind of research, we were exploring, um, well, a lot of the research, you know, um, was all about trying to get people dehydrated and looking at what were the performance outcomes of that. And the research really highlighted a a big gap where people actually knew, you know, the participants knew that they were dehydrated because they would either exercise in the heat and not have enough fluid given to them. And then they were tested. So they felt extremely thirsty or they were given a diuretic or, you know, or being in a sauna. So there was a lot of these methods were were known to the participants. So we came up with a, a strategy where we could overcome that and actually try and really blind individuals to their hydration status. And so it was a really exciting study um, that I did there. 
And then I moved across to Roehampton University under the supervision of Dr. Chris Tyler. And um, I then went into the next stage, which was looking at calling um, elite cyclists. Um, and we looked at calling the body before the exercise, so pre-calling strategy of putting them in a cold uh, water bath. And then we also looked at calling during the actual cycling protocol, um, we called the neck area. And so that was a really interesting study where we manipulated body temperature and also, um, you know, a perception of how cold they felt and then tested them in terms of a time trial. And then after that, I finished with a grand finale. And most people who have experienced doing heat acclimation protocol would know that it's a, a really interesting um, few weeks in the lab where you know you're in at 5 a.m. and you don't leave till you know 10, 11 o'clock at night, and you're just day in and day out. And um, I was really fortunate; I got to work with 16 incredible athletes, um, and I looked at an isothermic heat acclimation protocol. So basically, where we clamp their body temperature once it got to about 38.5, and then um, we kept it there in a more of a passive exposure once they've exercised and really interesting findings from that paper so all in all it was an interesting three big pieces of work that kind of got into about five experimental chapters of in my thesis so yeah, I was it was really interesting to look at those three key areas mm-hmm yeah and so with your own, just thinking about your own sporting background as well, that's included both Ironman triathlon and ultra distance running. Yeah. Um, including uh, the 2019 Marathon de Saab that we'll be speaking about today. Were you a runner or a triathlete first and foremost? And how has that evolved over time? I don't feel like I'm any of them. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I was I was a sports player at school. I used to play hockey and everything. And then um, mm-hmm. triathlon did come first if we're choosing between these two. I mean, if I mm-hmm. look back at the distances I used to run during triathlon, I would probably do 10K a month. Like, yeah. that was just nothing. That was for Ironman. Yeah. Like, I yeah. was not a runner. Every time I would run, I would be, I would get injured. It would fatigue me so much that then it then had an impact on, you know, getting up to swim or getting up to get my bike. And then you're just in a, you know, vicious circle. So I I would say, you know, triathlon was the endure, my, my first step into the endurance world. And I, I did a, a sprint triathlon in 2012 and I literally thought this is the worst thing I've ever done. I turned up in like this, in this wetsuit that I bought, that sort of like when you go to the seaside and they sell these like kind of wetsuits for kids. So I turned up on one of those. I had this bike that was, <laughs> there's literally a hundred pounds. It, I didn't even know how to cycle. Um, I hadn't cycled for years. And and then I had like a handful of jelly babies on my run, just remembering <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> this really, really hurts. I just couldn't <laughs> run. I was like, this is not, it was only like, it was literally a 400 meter swim. <laughs> I think yeah, it was a 15 yeah. kilometer bike. And it was like maybe a 3K run. Yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah. like, never again. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone listening's had that experience at some stage. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I think the, the issue is with all of these kind of, I don't know, I think one of my issues, I'll talk for myself, is I've got really bad, like, short-term memory. <laughs> I just forget. <laughs> like, it just, it's like, did that even, I don't even remember. I just park it in somewhere in my brain that I just have no access to. And I sign up again and do something else. And then I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well i think again every pretty much everyone who listens i mean that's why there's there's memes of this all over social media isn't there yeah like, you know you're, you're five meters from the finish line and you say never again and then you're five meters past the finish line and you say oh when do i sign up for yeah. the next event yeah yeah absolutely yeah. i know it's it's crazy it definitely is yeah, and that just continued then you yeah you just then just kept stepping it up into the to the iron man not at all, not at all. I, I literally, I saw, uh, so Lewis uh, James, he did a an Ironman, it was at the Outlaw in Nottingham, and mm-hmm. um, I think he did it maybe 2012 or something, um, and I was like, oh, that's really cool, and he told me how many Percy pigs he was going to eat, because that's how he was going to work out his carbohydrates, and I was like, oh, that sounds really yummy, I'm definitely going to do that, <laughs> and then... Um, I looked, I saw a YouTube video of Ironman and I think it must have been the world championships and I had no idea what Ironman was. Like I, I, this, what I was, I never knew about this world. Like I was just so closed off from it, but I saw this YouTube video and the music was just, I I love a video on a race. Like that's what makes me sign up. They got a good video. (laughs) I'm signing up. (laughs) Fair enough. And Lewis tells us to this day, he still, Still aiming to get out there because his wife beat him. I think she's got a <laughs> roof. Yeah, and he does. And he's de- yeah, he, he's did he tell de- you he's why? To, to knock her off at some stage. He, no, no I say this his, is a scoop. I think I think this is okay. So I think he thought she was still in transition off the bike, and he's going to listen to this. And maybe that I, if my memory, see, I have got a good memory. Some reason for races, I don't. And so he thought she was in transition still, getting changed to get on the run. So he just started eating his cheese sandwich or peanut butter sandwich, whatever it was. And then he realised after a while that she actually wasn't coming out. <laughs> and then he popped, <laughs> but she's already on the run. <laughs> so he's just there enjoying a nice sandwich, you know, and then he was like, oh, I've got to go now. So maybe we'll cut him some slack on that, I think. <laughs> And have you done other self-sufficient uh, multi-day ultras or adventure races apart from um, Marathon de Saab? No, um, Marathon de Saab was my first um, self-sufficient ultra. I had done a few ultra. I mean, when I signed up to this race, I was like, I've got to go out there. And I've never ran mm. past like, you know, okay, I used to do a marathon and an Ironman, which mm-hmm. so I wasn't in a bad position as such, but. I, you know, running wasn't my strength at all. Um, so I was, I signed up to a few races before. They were like more like your one day or your two day, but not not to the standard of the Marathon de Saab at all. Um, so it was, it was a really exciting and very like nerve wracking experience of, you know, being a scientist, like I'm, I'm very like a bit of a control freak. So mm. I'm trying to like, control every aspect of this. And obviously I've got the spreadsheet as most people do within these races. And you're just calculating. I mean, I would spend hours doing it. I loved it. It, it's, it was, it's like one of those things where you feel so comfortable when you're doing it because it takes away all the anxiety of the race. 
Mm-hmm. So you kind of spend a lot of time, you know, literally calculating everything, you know, not just nutrition, but your kit. Um, how can you save weight? Um, and that's what it's all about. It's, I mean, for me, that's what it was all about in terms of if I'm going to do something, I want to do it. I want to do it to its max. I'm not going to just turn up and just see how it goes. I'm, I wasn't going to race. I was going for the experience. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I wasn't. I didn't have an expectation of coming in at, at a certain time or position. Um, I was doing it for a charity and a lot of that aspect behind it. But I still wanted to make sure that I got to that start line in the best possible position because that was really important to me. I don't want to look back and be like, I should have done X, Y, or Z. You know? Yeah. 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 And so looking now into the planning process for self-sufficient events, um, which is, I guess, our topic um, today is how do I plan for a self-sufficient multi-stage event? If we think about the Marathon de Saab, I guess the first question is uh, what got you interested in doing a self-sufficient event like this? I mean, you could have chosen something not in the desert perhaps, <laughs> but but you went you went there. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, um, so my, my last PhD uh, research study, I had 16 athletes that were preparing for the marathon sub. Uh-huh. So, you know, I was sat for three weeks in March time, 2018. So the year before I signed up, um, just exposed to such incredible people. I mean, just that get up and go, yes, the type A personality, it was just... I just completely admired them and I was so inspired and this is what I'm all about, you know, I really want to have that energy in my life and I was really taken back by that and of course my research is all about, you know, hot environmental temperatures and after spending probably the best of seven years in a hot environmental chamber, yes, within four walls in London or in Loughborough, but I was exposed to similar, you know, environmental conditions to what I would be racing within. And I thought it would be, you know, a great way to finish my PhD of piecing everything together. And, Mm. you know, I was hoping to finish, I was actually hoping, no, I did submit that. Did I submit in that year? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, everyone, when you try and write your PhD, you're like, right, I'm going to finish in January. Then it gets to December and you're like, wow, how's it got to December already? But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I submitted that year as well. So for me, it was, you know, it was a lot. I, I nearly didn't finish my PhD at one stage um, because I, I did suffer with, um, you know, like most people, uh, we all have mental health and, and um, you know, I, I went through a bout of depression and um, it's something that I work on every day and I'm very open about. And so for me, it was a real celebration, you know, that mm-hmm. I, I came this far and, you know, I went back and I transferred and I'm so grateful at being at Roehampton. I'm so grateful for, you know, Dr. Chris um, Tyler, like, and you know the support system that I had around there and it was it was yeah it was it was like a celebration for me to get there and enjoy it so that's you know I was inspired by these athletes and I just thought Mm. yeah this is the perfect way to finish my PhD yeah and I don't know what my excuse is for doing it next year (laughs) oh you're doing it next year as well are you well yeah I I'm 
unofficially signed up, but I was going to try and do it this year. Um, I had put all that kind of deposit down and obviously then it got all, you know, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So next year is, I've been building, um, as I said, I was never an ultra runner and I wouldn't still say I'm an ultra runner, but Mm. I I went into the marathon sub in 2019 on very little training. Mm -hmm. I think it was a total of 1800 kilometers within that year which is not very much for that type of race yeah and so now I've just been you know I have the capacity where this week I've managed 100 kilometers and next week will be like 120 kilometers and to do that week after week I'm now in a much better place and so and this is why when you see these runners you know who are winning these races these ultra endurance events um you know they're they're late 30s early 40s um mm-hmm. in this world it's and you know it's a lot to do with years and years of mileage in the legs and you know also a lot of other aspects of things but you know it it's time unfortunately it's like you can't rush and you just have mm-hmm. to keep getting up every day and not having that memory of last time you saying before the memory deficiency yeah absolutely that you sign up again <laughs> i know i'm going to be out there in the heat and i'm like why have i done this again but you you know yeah exactly yeah. right <laughs> and and i know um steph you've talked about this quite a bit as well is the fact that a lot of the people on the start line of a race like mds like you said you know going into it on on not that much training and there's a lot of people who do that for these kind of events and maybe that's something we'll talk about as we go on is sort of um the the preparation or or lack of that a lot of people have and and how that can get them potentially into trouble sometimes as well yeah 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 cool and so for listeners who may not be familiar with Marathon de Saab, can you give us, uh, I guess, a brief overview of what the event involves in terms of, you know, where is it, how many stages and the length um, of Marathon de Saab? Yeah, sure. So basically the Marathon de Saab, um, it, it, I think it started in well patrick who is the race director he went out in 1984 and did his whole solo kind of um, run himself i think he did 350 kilometers with about 35 kg on his back because he had to carry all his water so then on i think in 1986 was the first ever mds and basically it's just completely grown from from there on and Every year, what happens is they they change the, you know, uh, the route that happens. So, you know, you don't always have the same, you know, on stage one, you may not be on the same start line or the finish line, etc. So roughly, on average, it's about 250 kilometers. And they break this up into six stages over seven days. So day one to day three is typically you know distances between 32 and a half to 37 that's what it was for me it might might have some slight variation but they they have those three days back to back and then you have this fourth day with the fourth stage which is the long stage and this can range between maybe 70 to 90 kilometers and with that stage you have i'm, I'm not 100 the the time it might be 24 hours or more but basically you have then after this stage a rest day 
And that rest day is dependent on how quick you've managed to do that stage. So if you finished in good time, you then have longer to rest. And then stage five, um, which normally happens, I think it's on a Friday maybe, um, that is a marathon. So that is 42.2 kilometers. And then the race is kind of, that's when you get your medal, but you have one more stage after, and that's the charity stage. And that's six to seven kilometers. Um, And it is absolutely incredible how you literally get to the marathon, you finish it, you get your medal, and you just fall apart. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you just can't even put one foot in front of the other. But, you know, you I think your body, you've just pushed and, you know, yourself to that point. And then you've got there and you know it's kind of, it's it's done. And you just, your body's just like, yeah, get me back. Like I'm done now. Um, but yeah, so the basically on my stages, what happened was stage one was quite rocky. Um, you have lots of different terrains. So soft sand. Um, hard sand um, and then on days two we had these sand dunes and I think that was maybe about 13 kilometers of these sand dunes and that was the day on day two that I literally thought it wasn't like when I was going to finish it was more like I don't think I'm going to be able to finish and I've never I didn't have like I didn't think I was ever going to come like have that feeling in this race but I was in a lot of pain my back was really in a bad place um and which could have been a number of reasons and I still I change all the time I'm like I think it might have been my bag but no I had a really bad I have a I had a bone that basically either snapped off my the back of my ankle like during a race at one point or it never fused onto the back of my ankle it's called an ostrigonum and basically it floats and it would get caught. Um, it's like a nutcracker, so it could get caught and it fractured quite badly. So in the lead up to training, it was quite sore. And when you have an injury and a location of body, the opposite side or, you know, something happens where you overcompensate, don't you? So that, that, that may have been a big implication, but I had it removed just after the race. So... I'm in a much better position now, which is good. Um, so that was a really challenging stage for me, day, like stage two. But yeah, it's pretty incredible how the terrain is so different and so varied. And there may be only one point that I actually thought it was very hot. There weren't that many other points. I, yeah, I was quite comfortable in, during, in terms of temperature in this race. And so, Jodie, then also, um, what about the eating and sleeping conditions of Marathon de Saab? How do you prepare and, and serve food um, in that event? Yeah, so the food bit is the biggest part to it because, you know, it's you're trying to get as many calories as you can, but as light weight as you can, basically. And um, so that's really challenging in terms of, you know, basically sourcing this type of food and seeing if it actually agrees with you before you, you even get there. So you might find something like coconut oil. Great, it's got so it's got so many calories, but you're not going to go and drink coconut oil mm. along the whole marathon sub. A, probably not that nice. Two, you're probably going to have a really bad stomach. So, um, you know, it's, it's working out, you know, what you can have that you're not going to get bored of um, and it works with your stomach. And so the first thing is, when you're doing the marathon to start, you're actually not running 
at a very, very high intensity. So that's a real benefit because obviously then, you know, you can then take on slightly higher fat compared to carbohydrate as you would do, you know, compared to in a marathon where you are probably at 95, 100% of VO2 max, you're, you know, you're probably about 50% of VO2 max here. So it's, so that's the first thing. So understanding that aspect of things. So you're not having to really put, you know, loads and loads of carbohydrate in your body. Um, so that's the first thing. What I found really hard was the freeze-dried food that you take. So basically what that is, is like these sachets and they've just got dried like food bits and you add water to them. And then obviously then it, it makes something of some substance. <laughs> and um, in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, where like I can have porridge every day and I love my porridge in the morning. But when you get to the desert, it's not the same. You, when I had the same, mm. I was meant to have the same breakfast every day there. I couldn't stomach it by day two. And mm. I was really taken back by that. Um, I don't know. It was like, even just thinking about it now, my stomach just feels a bit sore. I'm like, oh, I just don't want to ever have that again. But it mm. was, I did it because it's like that I would quite enjoy. It was like a coconut, chia seed type, porridge type thing. And it had a really high concentration of, you know, calories, um, which is perfect. And yeah, but by day two, I just couldn't I, I just stopped eating it to be honest so I mean that's quite a large amount of calories not coming into like my body um but I'm you know I'm quite efficient anyways but yeah that was really really struggled with that um in terms of my breakfast I think I got my during the race perfect um in terms of I I use I love food like I absolutely love it and like it gets me through some races and some really tough times and so if you kind of split things up along the way you know it's like right let's get to 10k and then you're going to have some mawams let's get to 20k and you're going to have some cashews salted cashews or something so it's like I, I use food a lot to like motivate myself to get to different stages and that's what I basically did during um, the race. And then afterwards, you have a, a recovery drink instead. You know, you completely miss lunch. You don't have that. And um, so my recovery drink, I decided to be really smart, which was not that smart at all. And I found this like meal replacement drink that had a, one of the highest amount of, you know, calories in it, but for a really like low weight um, and it had a really good like ratio between carbohydrate and protein as you know it's not all about you know the protein aspects you need to replenish uh, glycogen stores as well and um, that did not work out so well I just didn't enjoy drinking that at all um, but I've got eight bags of it still at home <laughs> <I don't> like <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I thought maybe in quarantine if it got really tough and I couldn't get any food <laughs> but nope never got that desperate <laughs> So now you have to save it for next year's race. <laughs> yeah, I'll just sell it to someone. No, no, I think it's probably yeah. out of date now. <laughs> but, um, mm. And then you kind of have like a little snack kind of with that. So, you know, having something quite salty and crisps are really good actually. And, you know, you work out what's the best, you know, in terms of calories again and pom bears or something like that is really, you know, actually well-placed in terms of, you know, the, the ratio of like calories and then weight 
Um, I have literally pages and pages of um, of all of these foods broken down into, you know, how many carbohydrate, how many fat, protein, sodium, and what is the weight of it, and what is how does it break down into calories per gram? And I, I when I'm in a, a mind frame, I can literally go on a supermarket website and just research snacks, and I just update the spreadsheet. Even though I'm not doing this race this year, I just do it because it's, you know, there are new products coming out constantly and it's really interesting. It's it's not sports nutrition. Even though you're doing, you know, a sporting event, actually the sports nutrition doesn't have sufficient amount of calories per gram. You need to then think outside the box, the macadamia nuts, etc. Um that you know which is which is all part of the process so it's a real learning experience and plus you can't meet the scientific evidence of you know you need to have you know I think Louise Burke's work was it you know 10 to 12 grams of carbohydrate per body weight you know and the lead up to an endurance event you know you're doing this back to back you can't carry that amount you know because the weights that you would be carrying would be more detrimental and actually you'd have a higher energy expenditure um so it's a real fine balance but you're allowed well you have a minimum requirement of 2,000 calories per day and I averaged about two and a half thousand every day some days uh, the long day there was like 3,200 so there's lots to work on and I think while there's lots to work on you can't control the variables that may happen in that race that happens next year. There's so much can happen. It, and it's, you can try and be as scientific and as OCD about all these things. But the reality is there are things that you cannot control, you know, and it's, it's very hard. I, I didn't have the perfect race. And yes, I'm so exposed in this world. And I guess it's why people keep going back because they haven't had the perfect race. <laughs> and mm. then... Yep you learn you may do something a bit different and then that didn't quite work maybe i'll try the other one again but yeah mm, no absolutely and i think uh, from both steph and my perspective you know working with uh, a lot of athletes who've done either mds or, or similar events i think it's one of them for me it's one of the most interesting areas to work in because you have to juggle the the scientific you know calories carbs protein fluid stuff with exactly what you said the logistical and the practical stuff and there's no more i guess extreme challenge from a logistical and practical stuff about a self-sufficient event where you've got to carry your own food with you and then add to that the desert and the heat component to it as well on top of that um but i'm just interested um i guess taking a step back jody in terms of the the planning process from a, a nutrition perspective how far out from the event did you start sort of planning for the, the nutrition in terms of what you were going to take and, and what that was going to look like and and i guess how did you kind of start that thought process around nutrition yeah it's a really good question so i think it was about five months before um, and that was based off the fact that I had been exposed to athletes, you know, from my research. Um, so obviously I started thinking about it, but it was about five months before where I really had the spreadsheet. And in all honesty, I felt completely lost. Like 
it, it felt very overwhelming, this whole MDS experience, because you have these social media groups on Facebook and everyone's got an opinion and that's that's great. But it's very hard because no two people are the same, like, you know, and it's and you and you hear a lot of noise. And so what I did was basically worked out, well, this is my minimum requirement that I need to have, which is 2000. Let's start off with that base. What are the the companies out there that do freeze-dried food? And obviously I heard a few just in the lab. So I researched them. And, you know, I am someone who would just keep researching and researching. And that's just what I did. But I spent hours, like literally hours and hours and hours, like probably days and like just on end, constantly looking into all of this. Um, It's hard work. And it's one thing that really worries people because it's quite a scary thing to go into a desert and you can't just order, like, you know, food. You can't just go on, you know, an app like Deliveroo that we have in the UK and get some pick and mix, which I love. But, you know, you're there and that's all you have. And that's quite scary. And um, it's, it's the unknown, isn't it, for the first time? It's a lot of the unknown. So it is... You know, and then you've got to go out there and do a lot of trial and error. And I was really lucky because I do spend obviously time in the chamber. And um, I, my stepdad is South African, so I do go to uh, Cape Town in like Christmas times where it is hot, and I get to have some great exposure, exposure and run. And I remember trying, um, you know, uh, I think it's Morton, which you probably heard of. You know, the carbohydrate drink and the gels. And I was like, yes, I'm going to get so much carbohydrate. This is awesome. I, literally, it's the worst thing I ever tried. I think, I think it's a great brand. I'm not saying it's like not. But for me, I was like, this is like syrup. I can't, I'm not, I feel thirsty. I'm not refreshed. I'm like, it was nothing about stomach discomfort or any like GI issues. It was just, I I need water. I need as So I worked out my own like thing where basically I put, 20 grams of this and seven grams of another carbohydrate drink called Tailwind. Loved it. It was like the powerhouse. For me, that was perfect because I got that, you know, that intense like from the Morton drink, but I also got that blackcurrant kind of, you know, aspect. So it wasn't as concentrated. So I just lowered that percentage of carbohydrate because, I mean, there's clear research. Yes, you can, you can, you know, load up and, what was it, 1.9 grams per body weight of carbohydrate, but they also don't really comment about how they felt when they had these kind of solutions or drinks as well. So yes, it may work in terms of carbohydrate oxidation, etc., and performance may have improved. I guess maybe that's important, but how did they feel as well is also really important. Um, and sensation as well is, is a massive indicator. You know, part of my research was looking at, you know, perception of you know comfort or sensation or thirst so that was really important for me Mm, yeah and we've we've talked a little bit about this before on the podcast in terms of carbohydrate during um 
a race or a stage and the fact that you know a lot of those guidelines are based off um, you know lab studies in cyclists which is very different to runners which is very different to running in the real world which is very different to running in extreme heat and, and things like that for multiple days so yeah no t totally agree with you there um, I, I guess you know, coming back to something you were talking about earlier um, in terms of that kind of underlying approach to your nutrition for a self-sufficient event I guess the biggest talking point um, that, that athletes generally have is around you know minimizing the weight and, and maximizing the nutrition and I guess talking to other people who who work with athletes in this space and you know from uh you know people that steph and i have worked with before as well there's obviously a few different philosophies that that you can kind of apply in this context you can you know some people try and go as light as possible and and you know just get above the minimum calorie requirement because they sort of say oh any extra weight that i'm carrying is lost performance yeah. um, other people will say no 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 you don't want to go hungry you know extra weight might be uncomfortable to carry but feeling like you're starving is going to be even worse some people say oh you know maximizing calories is absolutely everything so i'm going to go for really high fat foods and you mentioned the coconut oil before and i think some people literally do take oil and drink it um as, as yeah. weird as that sounds um and and uh, you know obviously some people can can manage that some people can't uh and then as you said you know you've got the sports nutrition guidelines that would suggest you know carbohydrate and protein being more important um but you sacrifice a bit in terms of weight to be able to do that so there's obviously different different ways you can skin the cat so to speak yeah i guess you know, you, you have a, a master's in sports and exercise nutrition and you, you've also done the event now and seen what others do you know experimented with things yourself just interested in your take on those different philosophies and, and I guess where you've kind of come to having had both the, the theoretical background but also now the experience of having done an event yourself. Yeah, I think like the first thing for me is, you know, number one, what is someone's purpose? Why, what is it? Is it just to do it? Is it just to, you know, finish it, the experience? Is it to really perform and try and win? And I think understanding that is really important to start off with. Um, so that's kind of where I'd start. Um, the second aspect of it really is what's someone's previous training experience? Like how many years have they done? Is this their first one? Is this, have they done years and years of this? Because that will really kind of give us an understanding of how well they are, you know, at performing in these events because it does take time to kind of have some adaptation to kind of better at oxidizing, you know, fat potentially. So it's that experience. I mean, when I'm really untrained, so training status, massively. So when I'm really untrained, you know, I find it quite hard to go out on a fasted run. But when I'm really trained, I can go out and do 25 kilometers without, you know, but it's not something I would advise to do because then obviously my recovery is impaired. And then, you know, yes, great. I can get, get up and go and I have to sometimes work. But, you know, there is obviously the recovery is impaired and there's lots of other things that do occur from that. Um, so, you know, understanding purpose, uh, training status and experience is massive to then, you know, know what it is that works best for that person. Um, again, sleep is so important. If you're, you know, you're running, you know, five, six hours, um, there's nothing to do in the evenings there. You want to, you literally get, you know, into your sleeping bag and, by 7.30ish, you're going to try and sleep. And that's where you're going to get a lot of that recovery and rest. And so if then being on a low calorie 
is going to impair your sleep because that's normally what happens to you as an individual, then again, that's not going to be the right strategy for you. So it's understanding what their sleeping patterns, if they're someone who needs a slightly heavier meal to sleep, that is really important. So those are really critical questions I would probably consider, um, you know, understanding on someone. And then it's what an individual's ability to tolerate during a run. I, I have athletes that I've, you know, come, seen come in and out of the lab where they literally can't eat anything during a run. Or some people like to have lots of sugar. Uh, some people like to have a lot of fat. As soon as I eat a lot of sugar, I can't stop eating it. Like, it doesn't seem to fulfill me. So that's a really personal. Uh, it's not to say that I don't have it when, I, when I'm out training, but I try and have things that are much slower releasing. So yes, maybe there is fat alongside it or protein, which slows that, you know, ability to, um, to get into the bloodstream, for example. So it's understanding those aspects of things. Um, at the end of the day, fat has, you know, sufficient amount, nine calories, isn't it, per gram in terms of, um, you know, looking at getting as much as you can for that. And so it works really well. And as I say, your running intensity is pretty low. It's, it's not going to be your fastest marathon, unfortunately. So you have the ability to take on something where you're going to, you know, break it down at a slower rate, basically. So I, I wouldn't say it is such an individual aspect of things. I, what works for me will not work for someone else. But what may have worked for me may not work for me in a year or two years. Because again, we are constantly changing. And I know that this is, this is a really horrible answer because everyone just wants to know, what should I do? Mm. No, I think it's a perfect answer because it gives you that, that really important context around that. And it's something that we've yeah. talked about with um, other, other athletes in the past about even single stage ultra distance events, whether it's triathlon, ultra running, 24 yeah. hour mountain bike, is the fact that, you know, you, as you said before, you evolve uh, over time. Yeah. Uh, in terms of your training, your preferences, your goals for, for racing, all those kind of things. So even in, in one individual, what works this year may not be the optimal yeah. thing for next year. Like it gives you, I guess, a, a starting point. Um, and I think, you know, before you were talking about the fact that there's so much information online and social media and people saying, oh, this worked for me, isn't that great? Um, did you see that in, in other people in the event in terms of, you know, people going, oh, the guys in the top five do this, so I've got to do that as well, and then it kind yeah. of backfires on them because that doesn't really align with where they're at? It's very interesting. So you hear a lot of, like, the liquid diet and some of the elites. Um, mm. The lady who won it, I think, was on a liquid diet, for example, um, so powder. And, you know, then you've got this other aspect of things where you get these really interesting sports products that basically say that they can, if you put this tape on your skin, you'll be able to uh, get amino, uh, branch chain amino acid, for example, through this tape. And, you know, I've asked, I've asked them a few times, but I keep on getting blocks, which is really interesting. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it would work, but if it worked, if you think it works, then great. And even... That's what I actually would have really appreciated being like, actually, we've done some research and physiologically there is no benefit. You know, you don't actually absorb it because there is not, basically, there's not enough leucine to even create any of that anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> so some people do these extreme versions and I am pretty sure that other people will go back and attempt that. 
and again like you say it it prob- it may not work i mean these athletes are training day in and day out they're used to this and um if you're in the top five you've you've probably got a lot of experience and are able to kind of play around with things um yeah so i have seen a few interesting situations yeah absolutely um so in in terms of i guess what what you did in your particular event um can you remember um you know we talked about the calorie side of things i think you said you started the race with about two and a half thousand calories per day yeah that's right yeah yeah and can you remember roughly what the weight of the food was like on a per day basis Ooh, that is a really good question um i'm very tempted i'm very tempted to um pick up my one of my spreadsheets right now <laughs> which um, <laughs> I'll, I'll do so it'll be loading um basically my bag weighed about uh 6.8 kilograms and the lowest it can be is 6.5 so yeah so my my weight of my food was on average about 560 grams at uh, 400 to 560 yeah so in total yeah it was about two, about three kg. Yeah, about three kg. Yeah. Um, okay. and th- th- really, honestly, like for me, um, I would never want to skimp on food when it comes to these things. And what I've actually noticed more in the like in my last race I did at the end of um, at the beginning of June, and what I've started to notice is we all go through like ebb and flow you know we go through good moments bad moments and and actually the most interesting thing is they happen so frequently that the best thing to do is not to hold on to anything for too long you know if you're having a bad moment you just you kind of don't think oh i'm having a bad moment this is it my race is over it's just it's just a bad moment and you kind of Mm -hmm. and then you're like and then all of a sudden you're like this is really great and then you go back into this is really horrible this is really hard and in that moment, you can smile to yourself because that just shows you that we never stay in something for too long. You do constantly jump. And what I've really noticed is when I start to dip mentally, like I get like tight, like this is really hard. It is sugar related. It's it's that intake. So, you know, for me, it's really important to little and often. And that really helps me massively. So... I'd, yeah that's why I'd rather have lots of different snacks during that and spread my calories instead of having massive breakfast massive dinner I kind of want to split it along that it's really important yeah yeah and so can you give us a, a bit of a rundown of, of what a day's food look like in terms of I mean I think you've already talked a little bit about the meal structure in terms of you know breakfast during stage you know recovery more snacks I guess than a meal and then then presumably dinner. You mentioned obviously breakfast, the porridge um, didn't go down too well. And I certainly, uh, that that's um, something that I've observed with other people that have done the race. We did a uh, published a case series back in 2016 on five people who, who had done the race. And uh, we asked them for some feedback around certain aspects of their nutrition plan. And one of them actually described the porridge as grim, I think yeah. on day three. <laughs> uh, and it sounds like that's a pretty similar um, kind of experience to yourself. In that situation, what did you end up doing instead for breakfast? Like you obviously had to change things at that stage or did you just go no. without completely? Yeah, you're at a stage where you, you can't, can you really? Because you can't get hold of any food. You're kind of, that's what I've got. So it was an attempt to get as much as I could. Um, and then, 
you know, that was it really. Um, I'm still uncertain what I would do differently. Um, I've still obviously got a lot of time to think about it, but I have been playing around with things to understand what to do. But yeah, the breakfast is an interesting one. And I'm, from any research that you guys are aware of, was there anything in a physiological aspect or is it just more they, they were feeling like it was grim? I think just feeling that it was grim. Yeah, I mean, I think it was more a, it's just a psychological thing yeah. uh, rather than necessarily yeah, a physiological aspect. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. Mm. Yeah, so it would be mm. the porridge to start off with. So you're looking at about, for me, it was about 560 calories in my morning, um, or about 500 in my morning first meal. Um, and then I would have um, likely about three pieces of food and um, and then I would have some sweets. So my food would range from like a nine bar or a rude health like kind of bar, which basically... They're quite loaded with things like sesame. So they've got like a higher fat concentration. Um, so my next stage is, you know, it'd be interesting to understand how much we're actually able to absorb from things like this as well. But it works for now. So I don't need to try and overcomplicate it because I will. <laughs> and um, so that was fine. I did take gels with me. And that's something that I would think about doing slightly differently because gels are good because obviously you know like the i think they were the goo ones they got you know about i think 100 calories um per i've actually got it up here so yeah per about 32 grams so again it's not great on the terms of my spreadsheet but i used to get on with them really well and it's quite an iron man thing where you have a lot of gels um so i was kind of used to that and you know i've been used to that years of doing that so, but they were very warm and again, not a great consistency. So maybe something I'll think about differently. Mawams, so the sweets are great. They've got excellent concentration, like compared to a lot of the other sweets, really good. So I would go for those. And um, I actually went for Pippa Nut, which is a peanut butter sachet, um, which again, it's got a lot of calories in uh, per gram. So might consider something different but it was it was it worked it obviously worked for them and it was fine um and then I would then have a post-stage that recovery drink which was that meal replacement which probably wouldn't recommend anyone to do <laughs> um and I call it a treat on my spreadsheet which I don't think it really is but I had a treat then which was like a pom bear like you know so some crisps that were salty um, I've actually found a lot, a lot better crisps options, and crisps are really good in the desert. Things like M and M's are great in the desert as well. Um, and then I always, I actually always had the same dinner. It was like a beef stroganoff and rice. And interestingly, like in the last eight months, I've actually gone plant based, um, not for, um, you know, not for really like the animal side of things or you no. Know, climate change etc but I wanted to see how I would feel um, mental health wise and physical health um, if I was to change because again it's really important to me to you know be as optimal as I can be and I found a lot of benefits I also you know there aren't a lot of benefits as well being on this sort of diet so I'm in I'm in a like a little I'm not sure if I would then go to the desert 
on a plant-based diet basically in terms of not eating any animal meats because actually mm. that's where they there's a lot of calories in them such as your biltong or your salami um and a lot of those free dried foods are high in calories in terms you know with the meat aspect of things to them so i'm in an interesting situation with that at the moment yep yep no that makes makes perfect sense um do you know how much off the top of your head how much um, carbohydrate per hour you were getting during the stages yeah i actually worked that out so per hour was about 20 to 25 grams so i did quite well yep Mm. Yeah, and I was going to say, because a lot of people don't have a lot. No, and that was based, so I was basically trying trying to always aim for 100 calories an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, so it was about 25 grams, which, again, if you look at the research, you know, I, you know, if I'm trying to get, you know, 60 grams of carbohydrate in an hour, I'm, I'm well below that, you know. So, um, but it, it works really well. So... You know, it shows that you can get through these ultra endurance multi-stage races with that kind of level. And you see a lot of the mountain races, a lot of the research, which basically shows that they're having like, you know, like less than 30 grams per hour in these races and still doing extremely well. Um, And I'll take that into two. So food and I had carbohydrate drink as well. And I also brought hydration tablets, which weigh a little bit more. But again making sure that palatability of the drink like the water if you're drinking water like just constantly you you get bored you don't want it and so for me that was really again that just shows you that i would take five or 50 grams extra because i knew that that would work for me that's important because if i because I obviously, I have a really high sweat rate. I've spent years in a heat chamber. So it's a great benefit. I have a, a great capacity to get rid of heat. But the detrimental effect is I lose a lot of fluid. So I'm dehydrating at a lot faster rates. Even though I'm efficient, I, you know, it's not, it can be not that efficient. So I knew for me, I needed to ensure that I put those electrolytes into my water, not at every checkpoint or every stage, but, at, you know, I'd have one or two per day. And that was really important for me to consider doing. Yeah. And the, um, like, in MDS, I think, in a lot of the self-sufficient races, they actually hand out salt tablets to competitors. Yeah. Did you use those or did you just take your own and, and use yeah. it more for every, the, the flavour as much as anything? Yeah, every 20 minutes I would take it. And, um, mm. and again, it was another mental thing for me. And like I said, yes. So one thing that does happen with heat acclimation is you're able to you know reabsorb the sodium that you've pumped out right so okay so i'd I'd be able to which is really important for you know sensational first isn't it um you you know Mm. if you've kind of got high concentration of salt compared to water you're then going to be a lot thirstier it's like the salted peanut kind of analogy type thing so um yeah i still made sure because um again just you know with the high sweat rate, you know, I was still certain that I was still losing quite a lot of sodium as well in that. Yep. Okay. And and in terms of um, the, the lead up to the event, so you've got this plan that you've sort of worked on over a period of time. Uh, you've put that together. How did you then sort of practice that in, in the lead up to the event? What sort of things were you able to do with that? And did you feel that 
the preparation that you had on that was sort of adequate in hindsight? No. It was actually really funny because it's like I I am in, you know, and I probably will still be in. I was in such a fortunate position where I've got access to all these things, heat chamber, the support, the people around me that know everything. And um, I I joined um, my, well, my PhD friend, he was doing a heat acclimation study. Um, he was looking at neuromuscular function and, um, but he was getting people really hot. He was getting into 39.5 and I was participant number one. And so that was in like February, late February time when I was on quite a high training load. I just couldn't even make it through day six. I was, I, I, I can't get hot. Like I, I lose heat really quickly. And so it was really hard for me to get to 39.5. So I literally, I blew. So I had that kind of bit. And then when I was trying to do all my heat acclimation, I was so frustrated with myself because obviously my research data needs to get to 38.5 because this is the this is the temperature I needed to get to to get thermal adaptations. And I could never, I literally, I, I can't even get, over 38 it was so hard and I was 50 degree heat I put the humidity up I was in a like rain jacket like I was just it was so difficult to to get my body temperature up and it was it was really frustrating for but I found it really frustrating because I was like I'm not following the scientific evidence I'm not even following my own research um so that really, um, for me, I found really difficult because I thought I was failing. I thought I'm not getting my plan right here because this was meant to be my strategy. And um, I'm going to put this in here because, you know, we're female, like being a female athlete, I was due a period and I was just so late. I just, it wasn't happening. And that, that was making me so frustrated as well because, again, I was like, well, I'm going to be hotter now. So I'm going to get to the desert and I'm going to be, what, 0.3 hotter, whatever it was. I'm not even that, I'm going to be bloated. I'm going to feel uncomfortable. And I was like, why? Why every race I've ever done, I'm either like, you know, I'm running like, you know, on a period or something. So it's really frustrating. So I was, I, it wasn't a smooth plan at all. It didn't, it didn't like, it wasn't to my expectation, but I do probably have a high expectation. But um, yeah, so that's my lead up to it. And uh, I was pretty fatigued from a lot of running considering I never ran. So March was a bit hit and miss, which is basically you race at the beginning of April. So it was an interesting month for me, definitely. Yeah, yep. And I think that's probably a good um, reminder for people that things don't go to plan and, and not to expect it to. I mean, you had access to all those facilities, you have, you know, you're a sports scientist by background, you have a master's degree in sport and exercise nutrition, and even for you, things didn't go perfectly. So I think that's a, a good message for people to bear in mind. Um, so, so thinking now about, I guess, the lessons that you learnt from the event itself, um, we've talked about a few of these already. Um, did you see things go horribly wrong for people in terms of nutrition? And what were the sort of things that you kind of observed in other people that, that maybe didn't go to plan? Um, in terms of nutrition, I didn't, I didn't see anything drastic. Um, it's, it's a really weird like world. Yes, there, there might be a thousand of you, but you're all kind of quite separated. And there's only about, uh, I think it's eight of you in the tent. 
Um, the, the main thing is people are hungry. That's probably the most common feature in MDS. Um, my best friend, uh, now my best friend, I met her in the desert. You know, she had an, an unfortunate, you know, event during the desert and, you know, struggled to take on food and water and was violently sick. So I did experience, you know, a very close person to me go through a really challenging time and um, and not get to the end of the race. Mm, definitely. Um, in terms of, um, you mentioned the hunger before, and I know a few people have sort of said in, in MDS that um, some competitors get so hungry and desperate for food that they either consider or actually start you know, trying to steal food from each other. Did you hear or observe anything like that along the way? I didn't hear anything about stealing. Um, I was hungry at one point and one of the guys, I think it was a big rugby guy, he uh, he had far too much food, which was weighing him down. So he handed us some pasta, which was excellent. Um, but yeah, I've that's that's really interesting. People like, oh, still... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And I've heard people literally go round and round and round and ask people, like, a lot. Um, I never got asked, and to be honest, not in a selfish, like, way. Maybe it is, but I, I wouldn't give anyone my food. <laughs> like, I've taken <laughs> what I need, and that's it, really. Um, Maybe your porridge, if, you can give that away. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, anyone <laughs> can have that. <laughs> but, yeah, when it comes to things like this, it's, you know, it's such a fine line that you're, you know, you're working with that, yeah, it's very risky. If someone did still sign mm. for me, I would not be happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the other competitors in the event, were there things that you observed that they were doing food or nutrition-wise? You thought, oh, wow, that's an amazing idea. I, I wish I'd thought of that. No, I didn't. No? No. Like... I find I find racing really it brings a lot of interesting characters. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, no, I, I didn't didn't look at anyone and be like, oh, I wish I had a bit of that. But um, <laughs> um, maybe their running legs definitely <laughs> nothing to do with food. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, I remember watching a documentary. Actually, there was a guy, a Japanese guy, who ran the entire event in a cow suit with like the head and everything. It's just yeah. Well, there was a guy who ran, tried to run MDS in Darfader or something. Oh, had to be early saw that. Because he got heat stroke. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, oh, doesn't surprise me. something crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so bring all this together, I guess, in hindsight, from a, a food and nutrition point of view, I and mean, I guess because you're you know thinking about the event or signing up for the event for next year, yeah. what are the key things that you think you're going to do differently next time compared to what you did last time? In terms of nutrition, mm. Um, mm. it comes a little bit of training, to be honest, as well. It's But if I was to focus with nutrition, it would be science to do with my breakfast and whether I maybe have some bars instead. And I've started looking at that because I could, in terms of weight, get a few bars in, like two bars rather than 500 calories just from like this, you know, stodge of a meal. <laughs> so that may be something that I would actually change. Um, I would likely change the the snacks that I have during. So um, again, it would depend on, you know, my training status, where I am, what's going on in my life, because I'm not a full-time athlete. I've got a job and trying to. I've got other commitments and things that I'm trying to achieve as well. So, 
stress, you know, makes it harder. Like on the nutrition side has actually a massive, does make a big difference. So I was a student then, so I might need something extra this time. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say, um, you know, gels, I, I would likely look at an alternative to having a gel. Um, whether that just be sweets or um, maybe I might need that time maybe a bit more fat um, which could be likely so it will probably be a closer to that I'd need to gauge what I need um, hydration no I wouldn't I so what I did was I had two bottles at at the front 750 mils and I took a flask and I'd recommend everyone to do this even, you know, it's going to really help people's, really helps my race. So I took a, a 500 mil flask, soft flask, and basically you have so much water at the, you know, checkpoints that you waste it, you throw it. So I'd always go in, you know, put it over my face, my, my neck, my forearms, my hands, because your hands can get quite sticky. Um, and then I'd pour the rest of it into this soft flask. And it would just sit, you know, in the front of my kind of, um, on my chest straps. And you can squeeze it, the like the top, like the nozzle bit, and it just squirts. And that would be my cooling aid. So I'd like hands, forearms, face, you know, 3K on, like hands, forearm, face. And that sensation was so welcoming. Like it was just really, you know, really beneficial. You, especially if you're getting like quite a dry mouth and it is hot um those small touches I'd, I'd rather have a little bit more fluid than less you know there was mm. one point that I um I ran out of water and I I literally thought I was going to die but I obviously wasn't going to die because I was only a few kilometers away but it was mm. it was horrible and that is enough to impair your performance mm. you know mm. so for me it's all about right I'm going back for a second time I want to perform well, I want to beat, you know, my position of last time. I want to be better than I was. So it, there will be strategies that I will want to bring to the table, definitely. So I'll cool. give that one away to people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and we talked with um, Professor Ollie Jay, who's a thermal physiologist, about that exact issue about using your know, water over your skin as, as almost free sweat in a way. Yeah. Um, but as you said, you know, dry mouth is obviously a really important one as well. Yeah, and when you look at sweat, you know, you look at the, they've done like the body mapping. I don't know if it was Ollie J that did it. And you can see like one of the large areas of sweat, you know, that you get rid of it is on your back. It's really interesting because you're wearing, a, you know, a rucksack where, you know, potentially, you know, they've done years and years of designing of these T-shirts that are able to get rid of sweat and like, you know, away from your body. And you're just putting something solid onto your back. And so, you know, is there some slight impairment in your heat exchange mechanisms? Potentially. So then on a perceptual manner, you need to think about ways that you can alleviate some of this and, and it's working out. And those are the key areas and that sensation, yes, it might be five seconds, 10 seconds, but it really helps. Mm, definitely. And particularly because so much of your other uh, the rest of your body is covered as well. You know, people are generally wearing hats. Um, I didn't wear a hat. I think I was the only person that didn't wear hats. And it was really interesting. I don't know why I decided that. But I, if I was an Ironman, I'd wear a hat. Because you go through an aid station every two, three or 4K. And you can get ice and you can put it in your hat and you can put it on your head. In the marathon Saab, it's something that's just going to... I sweat a lot and it'll just make me sweat more. And... 
the sun, I understand that, but I have sunglasses. So it was, it was one of those things where I decided not to do it. And I thought, would I do that again? I probably, yeah, I probably wouldn't wear a hat. Mm. So, yep. but again, personal. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, often people have like a big chunk of their legs and arms covered as well because they're worried about the sun and also yeah. obviously sand getting into shoes and things like that. Yeah. Um, but but obviously that room reduces the um, the area that's able to evaporate sweat off. Yeah. Mm, tricky. All right. So final question before we get into our bonus round: If we think about the different aspects of sports nutrition now that are relevant here from a scientific point of view, but then I guess apply the practical realities of an event like the MDS. In hindsight, do you think there are certain aspects of sports nutrition that might need to be focused on more than others or some that are perhaps you know, kind of underrated? So we've got obviously like the fueling during the stage, we've got hydration, recovery, um, managing appetite and hunger, the sort of flavor fatigue element mm -hmm. to it. Um, but even things like, you know, gut issues or things like constipation from, you know, lack of fibre and things like that along the way. Are there any of those areas that you think are either in, in this event kind of overrated or, or really underrated and people need to sort of maybe put more thinking into them? It's a really good question. <laughs> Protein is really underrated in MDS. Mm. Um. The reality is, and I massively underrated it. Now, would that be something to investigate into, you know, either supplementing something or, you know, branched-chain amino acids, for example, pre, before you sleep, you know, in a, in a capsule form, let's say. I, I'm, I'm just talking off the top of my head. I'm not talking from I know this area and, you know, I don't have the scientific knowledge to, you know, so please no one think I do, but potentially, you know, if we're looking at sleep and you, I know there has been research where they, they take on slightly more protein per body weight before you sleep to get that recovery. That is not really looked at in this type of event at all. It is really focused upon carbohydrate and fat and getting, you know, those calories. So that is neglected. Um, so I'd say that area. GI is always going to be a massive area within this world of um, ultra endurance and in the heat, especially with, you know, the amount of blood flow that gets away from the stomach area to, you know, aid muscles with oxygen and, you know, skin for, um, to get rid of heat. So that will always be a massive topic of interest within these events. Do people tend to get quite constipated in these events? Was it not really a, a major problem? I wasn't aware of it, and um, but I'm sure next time I could maybe ask that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm sure it is common because obviously you're not having fibrous foods. You know, the whole, mm. within this kind of world, you're just looking at getting sugar in. You're not looking at your, your five a day. You are just literally, so it, it may be likely, but then again, with running being you know that bounce effect within the stomach region you know potentially that provides enough to help reduce constipation i think people are more worried about having diarrhea than not mm. being able to go within these events um but i am sure it is it's still common i'm not yeah disregarding that at all 
we might hand over to Steph now for our bonus round to finish off. Awesome. Cool. All right. So this is uh, just basically five quick questions um, for the listeners yeah. to find out a bit more about you, I guess, besides um, doing all these crazy adventures. Uh, so if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, um, what would it be? In terms of work? Well, yeah, in terms of work or even if you maybe you don't want to work, what would you be doing if you didn't have to work? I would love to not yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I, would, I would love to set up my own um, training platform. That's my, my biggest thing that I would love to do. Mm-hmm. I want something to be in real time. I want athletes to basically have all these wearables and have your coaches and use machine learning to basically dictate what you need because you had a poor night's sleep, what you need because you did X session and your heart rate was X. So that was something that I'd love to do um, and develop and nutrition and everything around that. Um, so something in tech and be a professional. No, actually, I wouldn't want to be a professional athlete. I'd just like to just run yep. a lot. <laughs> and just be sponsored by Nike that would be great as well so if they're listening please I'll send you my address I... <laughs> that would be excellent um... just your bank yeah. account details will do no apps, apps, that as well yeah yeah awesome and um, favourite thing to eat or drink after a hard training session or race Ooh. At the moment, I've got really into, there's this uh, really cute kind of cafe near where I live and they do this like vegan banana bread with like chocolate chips mm. in it. And it's just so delicious. And plus they've got big slices, you know, and you go and you have like a little bit of cake and it's just not yep. quite right. So that, yeah, so I'm that and I order about 850 grams of pick a mix, which is not great for me, but you know, you've got to keep it real. Yep. So that's what I go for drink wise. I'm not really like a drink in terms of alcoholic, but you know, I used to absolutely love chocolate milk. Um, so maybe an alternative to that now would be excellent. Mm-hmm. And what's a sport you've never done, but you've always thought, wow, that would be pretty cool to, to um, have a go at? I think I... I always like wanted to try rugby. Mm. <laughs> I think I would have been quite good at it, <laughs> but I was just too scared to do it with all the other girls because I think it would have, yeah. But I, I would, I would have liked to have done that, or maybe I will yeah. one day. Never say never. Doesn't really go well with the running. <laughs> <laughs> and one person you've always wanted to meet, and why? Oh. So interesting. Um, gonna be really British, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm gonna say the Queen. Oh yeah. Yep. I mean, it'd be awesome to meet the yeah. Queen. Like, she has seen so much and been through so much. Yeah. I'd like to have a cup of tea with the Queen, yeah. and um, yeah, I'd like to know about her training regime as well. If she works out, because <laughs> I've not heard about it. So, and what she would eat during a workout or before a workout. I mean, it would be fascinating. It would be. <laughs> workout i like it well maybe you have to uh really focus on on your training because if you win mds you might get to meet the queen Uh, i'll just tweet her (laughs) (laughs) there's easier ways alan there's easier ways surely (laughs) yeah probably and any any race or event on your bucket list you haven't yet done i think bad water Mm. would be really cool um or 
I used to like really, I, I teamed, um, I was a sports nutritionist um, for a four-man team that did Race Across America. Mm. And I thought that'd be quite cool, but I solo, I don't think I'd want to do. I think I there'd be nothing else to do if you did that on your own. I just think, you know, mentally as well. So mm. maybe that in a team one day would be awesome. Yeah, that'd be quite cool. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your time and thank you for staying up um, late for us. And um, we know you've got a, a hectic um, job as well. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your insight and our listeners will find it really, really valuable. Just also the practical things, the things that they should consider um, and pros and cons of, I guess, different ways of thinking about things. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jodie, um, for a really good insight uh, into how you prepared for uh, the Marathon de Saab and just some really good practical tips in there. Uh, Alan, would you like to sum up, I guess, what we've learned from these last two episodes about preparing for self-sufficient uh, ultra events? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things um, that were really good in there. And I think, uh, you know, the sort of things that Jody talked about were very similar um, to what we discussed last week. I think the first thing that came clear from her was, you know, planning early. You know, she started her prep for, for the 29 MD, 2019 sorry MDS, you know, six months, I think it was, five or six months before the event mm-hmm. uh, in terms of planning everything and everything was set out in spreadsheets. And that's exactly how everyone I've ever worked with um, that's how we've done it is everything goes into a spreadsheet so you can calculate the energy density and all those kinds of things and the weight and so it's not just about working out the nutrition obviously it's working out the weight as well mm. um, and you know she also mentioned the fact that she's uh, planning to, to do next year's event and she's already starting to think about the foods that she's going to take for that event now even though it's um, you know about nine months out from the event um, and obviously there's a, an added change or difficulty i guess for her this time around given that she's sort of changed to a plant-based diet Um, and so some of the things that she'd used previously that were things like salami sticks or beef jerky and those sorts of things built on um, she's trying to work out whether she can or what she can do instead of those things now to keep the uh, the flavor savory keep things energy dense um, and to, to get the protein in there, uh, which, as she said, is probably one of the more underrated or underappreciated aspects of these events. People tend to think about the running and the carbohydrate, the fueling, uh, or just the total calories and the weight factor, and then don't think about the protein from a recovery point of view, which obviously we've had you know a couple of episodes specific mm-hmm. to recovery uh, in addition to this. Uh, she talked about, obviously, the energy density, so obviously maximizing the amount of calories for the minimum amount of weight. Um, and I think from uh, what she described, having about 500 grams of food per day at about 2,500 calories, that's about 500 calories per 100 grams, which is even higher than what we spoke about the other day being 400 um, calories per 100 grams. Um, so I think if you can get that high, then fantastic. If you can't, uh, you know, anything over 400 is still pretty good um, and then obviously that's the per 100 grams and then the total calories is essentially then dictated by how many total grams of food you take with you so she only took about a 500 mm. grams of food a day uh, when we did the um, the case series of the five competitors in the MDS 
just having a look through what they were um, consuming. Uh, it was a bit more than that. It was probably more around six to 700 grams a day worth of food, depending on the person. Um, in terms of during the stages, you know, we talked about the fact that um, you, know, you just can't carry enough to meet the optimal nutrition guidelines. And, and Jody really confirmed that as well. Obviously, she's got a, a master's degree in that. And so she's well aware of what the guidelines is. And she said, you know, there's no way you could possibly meet them in an event like this. Uh, she went for sort of, I think it was about 20 or 25 grams an hour of carbohydrate uh, during the running stages. Um, people I've worked with have tended to go a little bit higher than that, probably up around the 40 mark, 45 mark. Um, obviously the carbohydrates there from a fuel perspective, but as we well know, and, and you've talked about previously, Steph, it's important to um, protect the, the integrity of the gut as well, is to keep that carbohydrate in there to keep that blood flow to the gut. So uh, there's reasons for that carbohydrate beyond simply being a, a fuel source. Um, so they're probably the, the main points. And then there's obviously little tips and tricks in terms of what sort of foods to bring. Um, she talked about the M&Ms as an example, and that's one that we spoke about as well. Uh, nuts can be a really good one. Uh, and, and that sort of flavor fatigue and the preference for savory food as time goes on. But I think what was also interesting is she talked about the texture of food being really important and gave the, the porridge as an example that it just didn't work out in the desert and she'd probably go more for food bars and things instead uh, for the breakfast meal. Uh, instead of going for, for something like porridge. Yep, yeah. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting as well um, is how she had the the water bottle. Um, she had one of the water bottles at the front, right? Mm. So so you basically she could spray water. So using some of the excess water. So you're given water at all of the checkpoints, uh, and it's in most cases it's more than what you need. So... Um, you end up throwing some of it away potentially or keeping it for, mm. for cooking or, or cleaning up the you know, your dishes and things. Um, but in her case, she actually kept some in a bottle that she could basically spray, like mist herself with water, uh, which we talked about with Ollie J back in episode, oh, I'm going to say 4A off the top of my head, um, and, and using that basically as free sweat so you get that evaporative effect. So uh, there is a, a real cooling effect from that uh, if you do it regularly enough, uh, but also just that perception of heat as well. It just feels so refreshing to have that water sprayed on your face and then evaporate off and on your arms and legs and things as well. So uh, yeah, it's another smart thing, little tip that I, I hadn't picked up on before, um, using it in, in at least this context of a, uh, a self-sufficient race. Yep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's really good tips in there um, uh, from, both, from both episodes. And, I mean, a take-home that I would get from this is um, don't, uh, don't go too light. Um, think about that decision. And, um, you know, you, you've, you gave some really good examples about, you know, when you do go lighter versus going a bit heavier, what the, um, the impact is. Uh, and, uh, and then just in terms of the, what you decide to, to go for, um, make sure that again, you do try that, but you know, as we know, it might not always work on, on race day, uh, and make sure you try those products in the climate that you're going to be in as well. So I think, you know, a lot of the time, you know, gels might go down okay in, nice cool conditions but when it's like really nasty hot uh it 
they can be quite sickly and, and sweet depending on which ones you, you're using. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a big tip as well. Cool. So uh, in terms of thinking about then our next episode, I reckon um, this is a really good um, topic uh, and it's, it's one that I currently, uh, well, I've had a lot of injuries in my running uh, lifetime um, and uh, my flatmate actually has just had a, a big surgery. Um, so I've been like on her back constantly about her nutrition. So uh, the topic that we're going to talk about next week, Alan, is... Yeah, so next week will be episode 16A. Uh, and our topic is basically um, how does, should my nutrition change when I'm injured? Mm-hmm. So we'll look at that from, I guess, two angles. One is the fact that you're not training as much or at all, depending on the injury. Uh, and then the other aspect is that you've got an injury that you're trying to heal and recover and so forth. So uh, we'll have a look at, at that aspect of, of it as well in terms of what role nutrition may or may not play in that sort of injury repair and recovery aspect as well as just the fact that you're off your feet and and not doing as much training as you you normally would yeah yeah and we've um we've got doctor now right yep dr rebecca alcock yep 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 Yep. and you you kind of were a bit of a i think a support person for her in her initial startup to getting towards the phd i believe yeah yeah so um yeah so beck uh did her nutrition dietetic training up in Queensland but she's from Melbourne came back to Melbourne after she finished and didn't really know anyone here so uh, yeah I connected with her and um, and did some mentoring with her at the very start of her career and then from there she went on to do her honours project which was the self-sufficient run that Richard Bowles talked about in the lab uh, that we talked about in last week's episode so that was actually Beck's honours project Um, and since then she's gone on done a PhD at the Australian Institute of Sport uh, looking in this area of nutrition and, and connective tissue um, repair. So things like collagen, for example, and gelatin and, and this sort of area. So um, she now works uh, in team sports uh, in the AFL with the Melbourne Football Club. So obviously a lot of injuries there um, in obviously a, a contact sport. So uh, yeah, really good to, to hear from Beck, who's had that experience both in endurance and, and team sports, uh, but specifically doing a PhD in this area around nutrition and, and connective tissue health. So be really good to hear from her about, I guess, where things are at. You know, we have lots of people taking, you know, collagen supplements and gelatin and all sorts of things. Uh, and we'll hear from her about whether it works, whether it doesn't work. If it does work, how should you use it, how not to use it. Uh, and obviously the other considerations, as I said, when people are injured uh, and they're not training fully. Yep. Yeah, I reckon that's, yeah, should be a popular one. Mm, absolutely. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, I reckon we'll uh, let everyone go and we look forward to catching up with everyone next week. Yep, for sure. Have a great week, everyone, and we will speak then.